Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Founder Hour podcast. And this podcast is brought to you by Outer. Outer makes the world's most beautiful, comfortable, innovative, and high-quality outdoor furniture, all from sustainable materials, and is the only outdoor furniture with a patented built-in cover to make protecting it effortless. From teak chairs to fire pit tables, everything Outer makes has the look and feel of what you'd expect at a five-star resort for less than you'd pay at a big box store for something that won't last. Pat, and you know how much I love five-star resorts. Oh yeah, I do. And as you know, Pat and I spend a lot of time outdoors, and we love hanging out on our outer couches we're certain you'll love it too for a limited time get 10 percent off and free shipping at liveouter.com this is outer's best offer anywhere anywhere only available to the founder hour listeners get 10 percent off and free shipping at live o-u-t-e-r let me say that again for all you alphabet geeks live O-U-T-E-R dot com slash the founder hour. That's liveouter.com slash the founder hour. Terms and conditions apply. Let's get into the episode. Our guest today is Steve Case. Steve is one of America's best known and most accomplished entrepreneurs and a pioneer in making the internet part of everyday life. Steve's entrepreneurial career began in 1985 when he co-founded America Online, also known as AOL. Under Steve's leadership, AOL became the world's largest and most valuable internet company, helping to drive the worldwide adoption of a medium that has transformed business and society. AOL was the first internet company to go public, and in 2000, Steve negotiated the largest merger in business history, bringing together AOL and Time Warner in a transaction valued at $350 billion. To facilitate the merger, Steve agreed to step down as CEO when the merger closed. Following the departure from AOL, Steve founded Revolution, a DC-based investment firm with three funds that support the startup lifecycle at every stage while focusing on backing companies based outside of Silicon Valley. We started off our conversation by learning about Steve's upbringing. I was born and raised in, in Hawaii, which is a little unusual. Both my parents were born and raised in Hawaii, so our family goes back more than 100 years. When I was born, actually, Hawaii was not yet a state. It became a state on my first birthday in 1959. That was kind of an interesting place to to grow up. Obviously, a little unusual because it's an island and the weather is basically the same, you know, kind of kind of year round. Yeah, my my mom was a teacher and my dad was a lawyer, uh, and they really they both passed away recently, in the last few years. But both were but sort of lifetime Hawaii residents, other than going to the mainland for uh, for for college and then for my dad for law school. Uh, and so that's where I grew up. Awesome. I know we're going to get into this after, but I just can't help myself but think like as soon as we started this interview, I just took, it was like a flashback to like, I don't know, 21 years ago, 20 years ago, just being on AIM. Like yeah. I just want to get that out of the way because, <laughs> you know, it's just crazy. And now I'm like, God, you know, everyone's just getting older uh, because some people that listen to this podcast might not even know what aim was um, yeah, totally totally so, i understand that and also yeah. aol some people know it well a lot of people you know maybe vaguely heard of it but uh, don't my really mom get i'm sure and my mom listens to this podcast her email is still at aol.com nice. she is well thanks to, thanks to your mom on. out there for the loyalty she is, I, I, she's I, hanging on yeah <laughs> no gmail in that no gmail in that on that phone uh anyways but that you know, interesting life in uh, Hawaii. Did you? How long were you there? Uh, until I went to college. So uh, seventeen, I, I moved to 
Massachusetts, went to college there, then, then um, worked in Ohio for a couple of years for Procter & Gamble, um, and then I worked in Kansas for about a year for a division of, with time, the division of PepsiCo Pizza Hut, where I was the director of new pizza development, uh, which is a pretty cool title when you're 23, 24 years old, and then moved to the Washington, D.C. area, Northern Virginia, uh, in 1983, so I was about 25, I guess, yeah. uh, and joined a startup, um, which uh, a few months later failed, so that was kind of my... <laughs> My first experience yeah. in the startup world. <laughs> Welcome yeah. to the NFL. But thankfully, two of the people I met there, uh, you know, Jim Kimsey and Mark Sterrup, and I ended up co-founding America Online AOL in 1985. So a little yeah. bit of a journey from Hawaii to college to Ohio to to uh, to Kansas to Virginia, mm -hmm. uh, to and but eventually was able to kind of get going starting uh, starting AOL. Yeah, back back in Hawaii when you were a kid, as far back as you can remember. What kind of things were you into? Like, what were your interests? Um, what did you like to spend your time doing? Well, I was pretty entrepreneurial at, you know, relatively young age, 9, 10, 11. I had some little businesses, you know, did paper routes, sold cable television door to door, you know, had other kinds of things. I was, you know, I ran a record store, a bunch of different, different things. None of them were particularly successful, but I enjoyed them. And uh, I think I learned a lot from, from, uh, from each of them. I also, when I was in high school, was really interested in music business. Thought that's what I'd go into. So, would be reviewing concerts and and even promoting some concerts. Uh, so, I continued some of that in in college. I also was when I was in high school interested in journalism. Thought maybe that would be the the path. Uh, it was the era uh, before your time of of Watergate with with the with Bernstein as one of these famous uh, kind of uh, reporters who kind of broke the broke the scoop. I thought that was kind of Kind of interesting. So I was I was doing a bunch of different things, but I think the yeah. the part that was most interesting to me was the the starting new businesses side. Something about the creativity of starting things uh, was, was what I found attractive. On that note, though, you know, sometimes uh, I, I guess people fall into entrepreneurship in different ways, right? Like sometimes it might be your parents that are entrepreneurs and you kind of get that firsthand exposure, or it could be someone in your family, or it could be someone completely outside of your network but you're just sort of inspired by them you see what they've created was that ever the case for you like did you look up to somebody that maybe had started their own business where you're like oh wow this is possible or did you just sort of naturally just fall into something where you're like i'm making things and i'm making money so life's good you know i just want to keep doing this well in the early years again you know 10 11 i didn't really know what i was doing didn't know what an entrepreneur was but i knew i liked starting these different things it didn't really come from my parents because they were uh had somewhat more you know, traditional backgrounds, as I mentioned, you know, lawyer and teacher. So that was not particularly, uh, you know, particularly entrepreneurial. I do remember when I was growing up, particularly in, in the, in the, in my high school years, looking up to and reading a lot about the entrepreneurs that were building things. I remember Ted Turner, for example, building Turner and CNN and so forth. I found, uh, you know, really interesting and, and many others. This was in the, in the early seventies kind of, uh, you know, timeframe. Um, and so that was part of it. And then, then when I was in college, Things sort of locked in a little bit more. I, I really decided I wanted to help build the internet. You know, at the time, it didn't really exist. It was still more of a concept. The government had funded some uh, the defense agency DARPA to build it, but it was still only available to educational institutions, government agencies, not to consumers or businesses. Uh, but I was reading about these things again. This is late seventies, but. In France, something called Minitel. In the UK, something called Prestel. There were some interactive TV trials in, in Ohio. Just things were bubbling. I found that interesting. 
And then I read this book in 1980 by Alvin Topfer, the futurist, also wrote Future Shock and some other books. But the book that really mesmerized me was The Third Wave, uh, which he said the first wave was the agricultural revolution. The second wave was the sort of the industrial revolution. The third wave was going to be this technology revolution, this digital revolution, basically predicting more than four decades ago, the Internet that we all know uh, today. And that really got my attention. I thought, I want to I want to do that. I want to be part of building that. But when I graduated in 1980, there was, really weren't internet companies to go to, so it still was more con- conceptual. Uh, and certainly back then, venture capitalists weren't backing 21-year-old kids with crazy ideas. And that's why I went into sort of the corporate sector for a few years to get experience at both uh, Procter & Gamble and PepsiCo. But I, so I, even when I was at both those companies, I knew what I wanted to do. I just didn't know how to get there. So, Steve... I saw that you went to uh, Williams College, which, you know, in Massachusetts, I know it's like, it's probably what the number one liberal arts school today. Um, how did you make that decision? I saw you studied, studied political science. Um, doesn't have much to do with the internet, obviously, or anything technology related. I was a political science major myself. Um, why did you decide to go that route? And did it, did you get turned off by it? by all these kind of like extracurricular reading you were doing and all the future um, future technologies that kind of excited you? Well, uh, in terms of why Williams, I know I wanted to go to some school in the mainland, broaden my horizons versus Hawaii, and, and thought going to the East Coast probably would, would be better. And Williams actually had a connection to the school I went to. It happened to be a school called Punahou in, in, in Hawaii, Actually, uh, a couple, three people from Punahou go to Williams every year. It's just been true for a bunch of years. So Barack Obama was a a classmate of mine in in high school. I was a senior when he was a freshman. He ended up going to Occidental and then uh, Columbia. See that uh, but, now that's his claim to fame. Like, yeah, well, he would have he would have won a third term if he had just mentioned that. Well, I, I, I do remember the first time I I actually remember a little bit of high school. Um, I don't think we had classes together because I was it was a three year difference. But I do remember playing basketball with him a couple of times. And then when he moved to D.C. as a senator, the first few few months he was a senator, we we uh, we got together and I recited so some some event. He said. Uh, well, you're like the most famous person who's graduated from Punahou. <laughs> I said, well, I think that's going to change. And sure enough, a few years later, he's president of the United States. So that was the end of that little discussion. <laughs> uh, but I'm super proud of what what, what he did and, and obviously how he went from Hawaii to, to kind of leading, leading the country. Um, you know, you mentioned these like early jobs you had kind of in, in your early career, P&G, PepsiCo, Pizza Hut. What were some of the like, your biggest takeaways working in marketing at these companies at the time that maybe you still use today, like in your career? Uh, well, first of all, I didn't quite finish the earlier question in terms of at, at college, I was the kind of student that was doing what I needed to do to do reasonably well. But my real passions were outside of the, the classroom, including some of the, the side businesses I was doing, concert promotion and other kinds of things. And actually the only course I took it really was computer related. Was I think it's called Computer One Hundred and One or something like that. Uh, and this was the era in the late seventies of punch cards, where you you know you know create a program and, and it'd be on these punch cards, and you wait a couple hours for it to get processed. And of course, for me, find out it didn't really work and have to do it all over again. So I, that that experience with computers was pretty uh, you know frustrating. Like, well, this needs to be easier, and maybe that helped push me to make AOL easier, but. Uh, but I do remember that experience. In terms of the, the I, I did learn a lot at these companies. Procter and Gamble was was and still is a great marketing company. 
uh, really good at understanding what consumers want in terms of doing consumer research, really good at getting people to try their new products. When they launch something, they provide free samples, which is something we later did with AOL and they pre-trialed this. So I think that was important. Uh, but the reason that I, w- I was only there a couple of years then went to Pizza Hut is Procter & Gamble was a classic kind of top-down uh, command and control environment where a lot of the big decisions are made at, at, at the top. Pizza Hut, because it really was led by franchisees, was really more of a bottoms-up kind of company where a lot of the innovation was happening at the periphery. So I thought both were important experiences, understanding how to think strategically uh, and from a you know, P&G perspective, new market opportunities, research, and, and so forth, but also the fact that, that while we did try to do innovation at the corporate headquarters of Pizza, most of the really good ideas came from one of these entrepreneurial franchisees somewhere else. I think that was also helpful uh, to me in those in those early days, just better understanding business broadly and and product development and marketing more more specifically. Mm-hmm. Do you like pizza now? Like after working at Pizza Hut, I'm just curious. I do like pizza. I, I, there were probably a few years where I liked a little bit less, but uh, and I must say it was a crazy job because I would oh I spent some time at our headquarters in in Wichita, Kansas. I did travel around a, a good bit because part of our insight is I think we had five thousand pizza huts at the time, but there was something like 50,000 independent, you know, pizzerias all around the country. So he said, well, somebody somewhere probably has an interesting idea we can, we can learn from. And so I would travel around and, and try to discover what the next big thing would be. And, and, uh, I can't believe it. 23, they were paying me to fly around the country and eat pizza, but that was, that was my job. What was the craziest pizza formula you came across uh, in new development? Well, again, I was only there a year. The the big focus there was actually starting to just, which now, of course, taken for granted, but at the time it had not yet happened. The the delivery of pizza was one of the big initiatives that we were we were pushing on. It was just emerging. Some competitors were starting to do it, like Domino's, but uh, it was still kind of early days. So that was one of the big areas of focus. You, you know, there's something that you brought up, and I know it is also a part of kind of what you're doing now in terms of traveling and kind of going around. And it, it was something that I was actually thinking about recently. Uh, and even during COVID, the, the lack of travel, right? Not, not for pleasure, but for business, right? Meeting people, seeing them face to face, getting that, you know, I don't know, that physical human to human connection and how today we almost try to find ways to say, hey, why don't we jump on, even if you're you know, in LA or you're in DC or with somebody not too far away, can we just jump on a Zoom? Can we just hop on a call versus, hey, you know, let's go out to meet? Or, you know what, oh, you're in Virginia, I'm in DC, I'll, I'll drive to you, I'll fly to you. The, how much of an impact do you think the travel, the business travel specifically that you did um, has had an impact on your career? Not, not only your life, I'm sure it's had an impact on your life, but on your business career? I think it's been very important. And I obviously see the benefit of the internet and email and instant messaging. And more recently, the broad-based adoption of video conferencing, particularly Zoom, particularly during the the pandemic. And it is convenient. I was talking to a colleague of mine who flew from DC to LA to speak at a conference for an hour or so and and flew back. And it was like, well, (laughs) I kind of killed two days to show up for some event that was half in person and half hybrid. And so we're kind of adjusting to that and recognizing some things like this discussion can be done just as effectively uh, with the, with, with the video conferencing technology, but there is value to being together. There is value in bouncing ideas off each other. Um, And I do think traveling around the country, whether it be, 
living for a while in Ohio or, or then living for a while in Kansas and, and particularly with the pizza job, spending a lot of time on the road, traveling around different, different cities. I mean, entrepreneurs basically, you know, kind of bump into people and ideas. They, they tend to see a problem uh, and see it as an opportunity and say they're going to go do something about it. And the more you're, I find, the more you're out and about, the more people you meet, the more, the broader your network, the more places you visit, the more likely you're going to bump into some of those people and ideas that could change your thinking and maybe open up uh, opportunities. And, and, uh, it's certainly part of what we've been doing over the last decade with, with Rise of the Rest, trying to find entrepreneurs all across the country, not just in the usual tech hubs like a Silicon Valley, but you know, all across the country. We've now invested in, in companies in over a hundred different cities. Uh, visiting those cities, understanding what what strengths those cities have, and, and what industries that legacy industries can be can leverage in terms of new opportunities. It's one thing to read a report sitting at your desk in your office. It's another thing to be out there and actually seeing things firsthand and, and meeting people. Uh, you know, kind of and having that kind of more you know kind of one on one kind of a, uh, kind of experience. So I think both are important, and I think we're all trying to adjust to this new reality. What are the things that really make sense to do more? In person, what are the things that can be done more, more virtually, more digitally? Uh, but I, I'm still a believer, just based on my experience, that a lot of great ideas came from being at some conference and talking to somebody off on the side or visiting some company and seeing something off on the side. And it wasn't on the agenda. It wasn't something that would have been discussed if it had been a, a, like a Zoom. Uh, and that led to insights that ended up you know, being quite, quite, quite helpful. Yeah. yeah, you know, I'm always fascinated by that moment when someone, maybe it's not a moment, but like that time when someone comes across an idea that's so, you know, good that they can't help but like execute on it and like take that leap of faith, I guess, to become an entrepreneur. And for you, like when you're kind of in this early career in marketing, working at these big companies, as someone who was interested in starting businesses at a young age and did start businesses at a young age, was there a moment or time when you felt like, I think it's time for me to maybe start my own thing or, or kind of go work at a startup or like what was, what, how, what was going through your mind at the time working at these bigger companies when deep down, maybe you, you wanted to become an entrepreneur if that was the case. Well, I, I, I said, when I was in college, I knew I wanted to be part of, of getting the world online. I, I knew I wanted to be part of sort of the internet revolution. Uh, so that was clear. I just had a sense it was going to be a big opportunity and an interesting you know, kind of, you know, challenge. Uh, it, I just, it just took me a number of years, really about five or six years before I could really do it, before I could really kind of co-found uh, America Online. And so that journey was a little bit circuitous. And on the way, I was trying to pick up some, some knowledge, exactly going back to some of your questions. I went to Procter & Gamble Parks. I did know they were a great marketing company. And, and I would learn some things about you know, marketing from them. I went to Pizza in part because it was more of a uh, a decentralized, distributed approach to I- innovation, and and uh, I thought that would be um, I- interesting. I joined the startup, and when I first moved to the the DC area, Northern Virginia, God, there was a great entrepreneur who I think had a really interesting idea. The market turned out not to be there, and that's why the company kind of you know ended up failing. Uh, but I thought I'd learn something, even if I if the company the company was successful, great. But if it wasn't successful, I'd still learn some things that would end up being uh, being helpful. So. It was, it was, I knew I kind of had a sense of where I wanted to land. This took me a little while. It was a little bit of a circuitous path before I finally uh, got there. And in retrospect, I do think the experience I had at some of those you know, larger companies and the experience I had at the startup, even though it failed, uh, were super helpful. 
Right. So talk to us about quantum computer services. Um, how did you end up there and what, what did the company do? Uh, I know that's kind of where AOL sort of kind of that AOL journey started. So uh, share with us a little bit about that. Well, the, it goes back to the startup that failed, which was a company that was doing a product called GameLine, which was essentially a, a communications modem for video games. And back in the early 1980s, very few people had personal computers at home. A lot of people had Atari game machines. Uh, and so the idea was almost like a Netflix for video games. You paid a monthly subscription fee and you could download these video games and kind of you know, play them over the phone line at the time and, and play them for a flat monthly subscription fee. It seemed like a really good idea. Unfortunately, by the time the product actually came to market, the, the video game, the Atari video game market had kind of imploded. And so we were sitting there, which is why it, you know had to go through layoffs and so forth. Uh, but the, the two co-founders and I said, well, let's take some of these ideas and start a new company that's focused on personal computers. But instead of trying to do it on our own, let's do it via partnerships. And so Quantum Computer Services was that company. Essentially, was building what we now think of as sort of private label or white label online services. We built something called Q-Link for the Commodore 64 home computer, which at the time was the number one home computer. We built something called PC Link for for IBM. We built something called no, for for uh, Tandy. We built something called Promenade for IBM. We built something called Apple Link Personal Edition for Apple. And that really was the first five years is, is essentially these private label services. Then what happened is our deal with Apple kind of blew up. We had agreed to uh, to license their brand name. They had never done that before with a, a different another company. They regretted it once we once we launched because we had control of their brand and we're doing things like free trials of software and they like to sell software and, and the Apple authorized stores. So there's a lot of tension and ultimately said we want to tear up this contract and go our own separate ways, which was sort of a, you know, kind of a difficult time. A lot of people in the company, probably a lot of our investors thought it would be the end of the company. Uh, but we had to walk away from the, having the Apple brand name and that, you know, we had to name it something else. And so we had a little internal contest and that ended up being America Online. So Apple Inc. became America Online and, and then we started focusing on building that up. And from that crisis that looked, was kind of a near death experience, it actually ended up unlocking a big opportunity that then fueled our growth. So, you know, the quantum computer services was essentially the name when the company started. We renamed the company about five years into it to, uh, to America Online. But what sort of ended up happening while you were there, perhaps uh, I'm sure it was after yeah, you started AOL when, um, you know, you guys kind of started getting into like so, the social, like you, you were a pioneer of like social networking and being able to connect with one another online. I mean, from what I can remember, whether it was AIM or even before that, just the instant messaging, that the ability to get onto to the internet and just talk to someone, I don't know, halfway across the world was something that had never been seen before. And so how, what happened in the in the you know the world of computing that ultimately ended up becoming the vision for AOL sort of to move in that direction. Well, from the early days, even that that first service we launched in the fall of 1985, that was our our focus. What we now think of as social media, our, we we thought of it more at the time as community, and we said the the killer app of the internet is people, people interacting with each other. So our whole focus was on building things like one thing we called people connection that was sort of like chat rooms. And we launched instant messaging, which then kind of evolved to texting and added buddy lists and, and had message boards. And, and uh, the whole time I was uh, running AOL, though we did the merger with Time Warner, about half of our traffic was these community functions. So we did that because we thought that was powerful as an idea. We also did that because that was a way to differentiate versus some of the competitors at the time, companies like CompuServe was focused on, content another one called prodigy backed by sears 
was focused on commerce. We said we got to differentiate by focusing on community. So that was part of the differentiation. We also, at the time, it was super expensive to be online. It cost 5 or $10 an hour to be connected, uh, which is why only 3% of people were online when we started. And they were, on average, using the Internet for an hour a week. So it was really, really early days. We said, we got to make this a lot more affordable. We've got to make it a lot more you know, easier to use. We've got to make it more useful. We've got to make it more fun. And that, that helped drive it as well, as well as the partnership strategy I, I mentioned. So I think, in retrospect, the things that really helped uh, propel the early success of AOL was uh, was the focus on on community was the focus on you know easy to use useful fun and affordable and was the focus on on building partnerships that could accelerate our growth do a lot more together than we could do on our own. Steve, at the time, how many people in the country actually had computers? Like now, that's a crazy question like to ask because everybody has like three of them. But at the time, what was because this is like early 90s or late 80s at this point. No, no this is mid 80s when we mid-80s, started, 1985. Yeah. Uh, I, think, I think it was about 10%, 10 or 15% had computers. But more importantly, only about a third of the people who had computers had communications capability. Right. This is kind of crazy, but it took us uh, several years to convince the PC manufacturer to build a modem into the computer <laughs> because very few people were actually getting online. Most people were buying a computer to do spreadsheets or word processing or something else. And, and the computer companies, IBM, Apple, et cetera, said, why would we add a modem to every computer, add the cost of a modem to every computer? And most people aren't really using that. And so at, at the time, it was viewed as a peripheral device. You'd go to a computer store and the, the peripheral section of the computer store to buy a, a modem to c- connect your computer to other computers and to the, into the Internet. Uh, and so it took us a little while to, to really get, get get traction and convince people that the main reason people would buy computers would be for communications capabilities. And as we got, which it probably was in the year maybe 1989, something like that, maybe 1990, we started getting some of the PC manufacturers to build modems in. That's when we suddenly saw an acceleration because instead of a minority of computers having modems, all of the computers had, had modems. And we also got, as part of these partnerships, got those computer companies to essentially bundle the AOL software on the computer. So you turn on the computer, plug it into the phone line and clicked on our icon and you're up and running. And that's really what drove a lot of our growth. Did you have like a grand vision at that time of what you wanted America online to be? We wanted to be the on-ramp to the internet for the masses. We were not going for the niche markets. We were really trying to build mainstream uh, support. And, and, and uh, so we were going for, you know, average people, not not computer uh, hop, you know, hobbyists or, or computer experts. I used to say at the time that we want to make it so easy to use that my mom can use it. Uh, my mom was a little offended by that. She said, well, why don't you pick on, you know, I'm better at this than your dad. Why don't you pick on your dad? But it made the point that we really yeah. were trying to make it super simple to get started, super simple to navigate. We were the first to come out with a graphical user interface to, to make it easier to navigate. A lot of services before us were text-based. So everything was tuned to what can we do? What more can we do to make it easy to use? Even adding voices to it. You know, people you know, talked about the welcome message or you've got mail, things like that. It was just a way to make it friendly, accessible, not so threatening. Uh, so anything we could do to drive down the price, anything we could do to you know, increase the utility, uh, different, different services, anything we could do to, to, to make it friendly or more accessible, uh, those are key areas of our, our focus. It seems like these days, <clears throat> I'm sure you would agree that technology is just like changing at a rapid rate, right? Like we're just every day something new is coming out with this AI thing, and then 
all this, all, every like so many things are happening right on a daily basis. Did it feel like that back then too? In those days when people were starting to get online and and start using the internet, like was it? I'm sure it was an exciting time, but did it feel like it was just like this fast moving thing that you know you were sort of trying to uh, like you know like be at, obviously you're at the forefront of it, but trying to like constantly see like what's what's around the corner. No, it was really slow. It was kind of like molasses. Yeah. You know, the, the first decade was a, really a struggle. Most people did not think that normal people would ever have a need to get on the Internet. Um, and it seems crazy now, but for the late 80s and, and the early 90s, that was the case. I'll give you a statistic to, to prove the point. We, as you said, we started the company in 1985. We went public in 1992. It was the first Internet company to go public. We've been bad for seven years. After seven years, we had less than 200,000 customers. <laughs> it was still pretty niche, and then seven years later, we had 25 million customers. So mm. it went. You know, it was the first phase was very, very slow, very hard, and, and, and kind of a struggle just to sometimes stay alive. But in the mid 90s, the internet went from nobody knows about it or cares about it to suddenly it was the hot thing. Everybody wanted to be connected, and we were well positioned at that time, and and benefited from a lot of that growth in the in the mid to late you know kind of 1990s. So in that phase. In the late 90s, I think it was a boom time. It's sort of this dot-com boom. Any company with a dot-com address was able to get funding, and, and some went public, even if they didn't have any revenue. And it yep. was sort of a gold rush frenzy period. But the first decade was was, was very slow, and, and, and it, w- it w- really required kind of perseverance to stick it through until, you know, until finally the you know, the sun started shining. And it sounds like you had to make this sort of pivot from B2B to like direct to consumer B2C uh, with, you know, like kind of the rebrand and everything. Uh, is that the case? Well, we, were, we were always focused on consumers, but we were using these PC manufacturers as partners to market to consumers. So we would create a service that was a consumer-oriented service where there was a you know, monthly subscription fee to be uh, on the service but relying largely on the Commodore, the Apples, the, the IBMs, people like that to, to include that software and a free trial with their computers, with their modems. So we we're able to leverage their large marketing spending to fuel our growth. But we always were, were focused on consumers. Yep. And the business model was software sales. Like no, the business, the, business, the business model was we would give our software for free. But we would basically get people on a subscription where they'd pay a monthly fee initially, including a certain number of hours of use down the road. It was more a monthly fee for unlimited uh, use. Uh, and so we were we were we did not sell software. We basically created software that we then gave away free as a trial device, a little bit like Razor and Razorblade. We're kind of kind of cre- giving away the razor to, to be able to sell the, 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 the blade. So our, our initial uh, model really was you know, a monthly fee where. Uh, people would use a whole variety of services and we would make money on that. Uh, over time, we cut the cost dramatically and we had to then supplement with advertising. And so the second decade was at the advertising side became more important, which allowed us to essentially cut the price of, of access and reach more people. Steve, as a leader during this time of you know growing this company, how difficult was it to recruit talent uh to work for you and to see your vision at such an early time uh, for the internet, for technology in, in general. And were there people that were qualified to build this vision that you and your co-founders had? I mean, clearly they were because they built it, but how, how long did it take for you to be able to get to that level? 
Well, it, it took a while. It took a you know we were you know, a young you know company and and most people didn't know what we we're doing and you know, it seemed kind of risky to most people. So getting people to leave large companies to join a, a fledgling startup was was hard. I think it also was harder that we were in Northern Virginia, not in California or Massachusetts or one of the bigger tech hubs, and it was harder to get a, a talent, harder to raise capital, harder to uh, generate attention, which I think helped fuel some of my passion and interest in the rise of the rest and trying to help entrepreneurs outside of those tech subs, you know, kind of start and scale their, their companies. What was helpful though is one of the three co-founders I mentioned, Mark Serif, did have a technology background and was one of the pioneers in building the core technologies of the internet, uh, in terms of the, when it was originally a, a DARPA defense project. And so he was able to assemble a team that was quite sophisticated in terms of understanding the technology, which helped on building that core technology. I was able to provide some of the perspective on the marketing side, establish some of the partnerships. And the third co-founder, Jim Kimsey, was about 20 years older. He had some experience with businesses and was able to raise the capital to kind of get us get us going. So, you know, in retrospect, all three of us had, had very complementary skills and the company would not have been successful without all three of us. I could bring a certain perspective about marketing, but first you needed the product and, and, and the core technology built, and you also needed the money to, to really launch the product. And so it was a, a good partnership in that sense. This episode is brought to you by More Than Profit. If you enjoy the Founder Hour, we think you'll enjoy this podcast too. It celebrates entrepreneurs, investors, and leaders that are living and working with purpose. The host, Bryce Butler, sits down with his guests and shares personal stories about what it's like to succeed and even fail. But more than that, what motivates them beyond just profit to press forward in their work and as a leader. Check out More Than Profit wherever you get your podcasts or at www.morethanprofit.fm. This episode is brought to you by Jason Wu Beauty, affordable luxury makeup infused with skincare ingredients. Founded on the idea that beauty should be effortless and chic, Jason Wu Beauty is about really showing yourself through the beauty products, not being covered up by them. Whether you prefer minimal, natural elegance, or bold glamour, Jason Wu Beauty has the perfect products for you. With colors and shades that can be used with any skin tone, you can create countless looks to enhance your natural beauty and release your inner icon. You will feel beautiful confident and completely yourself jason woo beauty is clean and always cruelty free available now at target jc shoppers drug mart and jason that's j-a-s-o-n-w-u beauty.com all right let's get back into the episode what would you say was like the most pivotal moment uh while you're at aol uh, there were several. That moment when Apple canceled the deal, and we had to rebrand it as America Online was one. I think when we went in public and, and started to see that the internet was coming at an age, that was another. Another which was which was hard, but it was I think pivotal. And I think nineteen ninety six or so, maybe nineteen ninety seven. Uh, we slashed the price of access, and and of course, as, ex- as you expect, the usage suddenly soared. Uh, but we weren't able to keep up with it, and so at one point, our AOL was down for like 23 hours and nobody could connect to it. It was sort of this, you know, national crisis. It, it, it led this, led the news on all three of the TV networks for the main headline and most of the you know, newspapers, which was crazy because even just five years before, nobody knew what we were doing or cared about what we we're doing. And suddenly the fact that we we're down for a day was this national crisis. That to me was well, frustrating, obviously, that we let our customers down. But sort of, uh, wow, I, I, I guess the Internet really has come of age. I guess this is something that's now important. Yeah. 
Um, you, you mentioned the merger with Time Warner, and I, I know you've gotten a lot of questions about this, but I'm just sort of curious, like, what was what led, led to you wanting to do that at the time? And uh, it, I, I know you said that it was, you, I think you believe it's like the, it, was, it was right for the time, but if, if you had to go back, um, would you still have done it? Would you have changed anything? Yeah, the reason to do it was strategically... AOL, this goes back to 1999, when we were conceiving of the, of the merger, it was announced in 2000. Um, AOL was a leader in what was then known as dial-up narrowband, but we didn't really have a path to higher-speed broadband. Um, and so, and Time Warner owned a lot of assets, but also owned, owned the largest cable company with the broadest broadband footprint. So strategically, it was very valuable. And also financially, we had gone from 70 million market cap went public in 1992 to 160 billion dollars seven years later it's actually the fastest growing stock best performing stock of the decade and so merging with a much larger business with a much more diversified you know kind of set of businesses was was important and we were able to get a, a majority of the ownership of the company as, as a result so that all made sense both strategically and financially indeed it made so much sense in my opinion that as part of the deal i agreed to step aside as ceo uh, and say, well, we'll these, put these companies together. You know, you guys can run it. Uh, I, I just believe in the vision of this combined company. Uh, what ends up happening, which is why it ended up uh, uh, failing, ultimately being broken up, uh, is we, we, even though the strategy was, I think, compelling, the vision was compelling, the execution of the vision was flawed. And that ultimately came down to people and priorities and culture and, and things like that. And that, that was, when I think about the merger, think about the, the famous Thomas Edison quote from over a century ago, vision without execution is hallucination. Mm-hmm. Having a good idea is important. It's the starting point. Executing against that idea is where the rubber really meets the road. And that's where we, the, the, we really failed from, a, from a, the terms of the merger. Was it because of how large the company was, like Time Warner at the time, that it was really hard to like, you know, focus on this one segment of it and really execute it like how a, maybe a scrappier, smaller company yeah, would? I think that was some of it. I think AOL, when we, when we started with 20 or 30 people, when we went public, it was about 200 people. Uh, by the time we merged, was, I think, seven or 8,000 people. And then we merged with Time Warner that had 80,000 know, people. And so it was a much larger you know, company with all kinds of different businesses that, in, in theory, could be quite strategic and quite synergistic, but in practice were, were operated more uh, autonomously, almost like independent divisions, independent silos. And, and so that, that contributed to the challenges of really seizing the opportunities that two companies together had. Steve, how did you feel, like, like really, during this time? Like, you built this company – you know, this is all kind of unraveling. What is Steve feeling? Like, give me terrible. the like non bullshit response. You know, no, terrible. No, I, I really believed in the idea. It was a little hard as you'd expect it. You know, when you're a, a, a founder and build a company, it kind of do feel like it's your baby, and handing that baby over to somebody else in terms of a merger and saying you 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 can raise the raise my child now. You know, uh, it, it always is a little bit emotional, but I was comfortable with that because I really did believe strategically it was important. Uh, but once, you know, a year or two into it, it was clear that we weren't really capitalizing on the opportunity. There were a lot of you know, frustration on all sides. Uh, and so it was it was really frustrating and disappointing. And I'd go to you know, board meetings you know, for you know, a couple of years or so. And and I didn't look forward to them. I don't think they looked forward to seeing me. <laughs> we were We were, you know, kind of on different you know, pages in terms of what the priorities should be. 
which is why I, I, I stepped down, uh, you know, not too long after the about three or four years after the merger closed, and just said it's time to time to move on. That's when I started making investments in, in entrepreneurs, and then launched Revolution as an investment firm, and then a few years later launched Rise of the Rest, to particularly back entrepreneurs in other places, and said rather than start another company, I'm going to start a firm that can help others start and scale companies. Mm -hmm. And rather than just focus on, like most people do on the tech hubs like Silicon Valley, I'm going to focus on on the rest of the country. You know, I really believe that people, you know, whether it's in business or in life, they really need to make mistakes on their own or, you know, learn lessons on their own and not just learn from books or from mentors or whatnot. And at times, I mean, it's very easy to just say, yeah, you know what? I listened to my mentor and I'm not going to do this or that, or I'm going to do this or that. And then maybe regretting doing something or not doing something. So having known what you know today, being uh, an investor, a mentor, I'm sure, uh, you know, a, a leader with all these other companies that you're now working with, had you told Steve Case at the time what to do? Do we take this deal or not? Do we get acquired or not? What would you have done differently? Well, when we were looking at it, first of all, even though the Time Warner business was, I think, five or six times larger than the AOL business, our market value was double Time Warner. So we actually effectively acquired them. And our yeah. shareholders owned a majority of the combined company. It, the reason it, 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 we positioned it, as a, even despite that, as a merger of equals. And then, as I said, I shifted the, the CEO responsibility uh, to them. Uh, when we were talking about this, including talking about it with our board, there was concern about this, some of these issues in terms of the scale of this company. And could you drive the synergies across the company? But I just believe it turned out to be incorrectly that the, the opportunity with the Internet was so vast and Time Warner really needed to lean into the future and, and be much more relevant in the digital businesses. And we, as I mentioned, at AOL needed to you know be more what better position in the, in the broadband side that that the promise of the two companies would be such that people would see the the future and look work together to to seize the future and that turned out to you know not be the case i, I still think strategically it made sense i think most of the board members um who i've talked to over the years still think strategically it made sense uh but it goes back to this execution point if you it doesn't matter if it's strategically made more sense if you're not able to get the right people focused on the right priorities working together in the right way to drive the the execution side how was how was your you know as as during your time at AOL what was your personal life your wellness life like what was that like i mean being the leader of this multi-billion dollar you know huge growth you know tech company how are you taking care of yourself outside of you know work because i feel like a lot of times you know we talk to these founders and leaders and you know you're always focused on either the successes or the failures in the business but you know the personal life and everything outside of work ties absolutely like both positively and negatively to work and to career so what was that like for you well, it was hard i i enjoyed it uh, because I, I felt like i was Building this new medium, I felt like we were changing the world. I felt like it was an interesting time to, you know, be alive. A time to be at the epicenter of that. So in some ways, that was very gratifying. But it also was was exhausting. I, I had to, you know, travel around, you know, literally in the country, and then start traveling around the world as we're launching new joint ventures. And so I was always on the move. Had a young family, you know, you know three young kids, and was not able to spend as much time with them as I'd like. Went through in the in that mid-90s time frame of divorce. So 
obviously there was some you know, damage on on the on the family uh, front. So I think it's very hard, as you say. Uh, that is true with most people, certainly in the entrepreneurial world, but also people in other other sectors who are who are kind of kind of leaning into a particular opportunity and and you know, really working more hours than they should and 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 making sacrifices in terms of other things they could or should be doing. Uh, and, and so no question, it was a, it was a struggle. Is there a way to balance that or is it just one or the other? Are you picking between, I mean, and not just for you, I'm just talking in general with now all the companies that you work with and the people that you have to advise. I mean, do you have to choose? Because, you know, I mean, Pat and I have been doing this for what, five and a half, almost years now, going on six years at the end of this year. And it almost feels like every story we hear of an ultimate success story, you know, has to do with somebody choosing between, you know, personal life and work or health and work or right or personal health and work or health and personal life, right? Whatever it may be. Is there a balance, honestly? Well, I think I'm a little older, a little wiser now. And so I'd say part of that is sort of setting your goals. Sometimes, you know, maybe you could be more moderate in terms of, of your expectations of growth. And that's one way to, to manage it. If you really want to go for it and given the nature of the internet at the time, it did seem like the right thing was to was to go for it. Then the question is, how can you build a team? How can you delegate as much as possible so it takes a lot of the burden off you? I tried to do that. We hired a lot of great people as part of that. And I went from in the early days of being an entrepreneur to kind of being involved in everything to later on trying to essentially be involved in nothing. I, you know, I had this view that if I was really a great CEO, I'd set really clear you know, strategic direction, uh, really hire a great team, you know, provide clarity regarding what they should focus on, empower them, and, and to be be successful. And so, I would, if I was really great, I'd wake up in the morning, had nothing to do. So it was kind of a complete change in terms of the mentality. That said, just given the nature of of, of the issues and being a public company and, and launching around the world and, and being one of the fastest growing and most visible companies in the world at the time, it did require me to be front and center. It did require me to be, be traveling, you know, kind of quite a bit. And so, I think some of this is recognizing there's a certain cadence of thing, a certain chapter. Uh, you see this also here you know, where I am in Washington, D.C. There's some people who uh, end up uh, you know, going into government, like working at the White House for two years or four years. And, you know, for that, that time, there's really not a lot of balance. They're, they're kind of all in because, you know, you know, they have significant responsibilities. You can't do it for that long, uh, but they're all in for that particular you know, period and do make uh, sacrifices. It's harder if instead of it being two years or four years, it's, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 years. Uh, that's where you really need to make sure you've got uh, more balance. And to me, a lot of that is is the priorities you set and the team you put in place. That's yeah. great advice, yeah. Um, you, you mentioned re- uh, starting Revolution um, after stepping down at AOL um, on the basically the premise or the thesis that, uh, you know, investing in entrepreneurs outside of Silicon Valley. And obviously Silicon Valley has changed a lot since then. And these days we see a lot more, you know, founders in other areas. But um, throughout the years, I mean, what was it? How do you see Silicon Valley as a part of the larger like tech ecosystem and and how has that kind of guided you in the direction that you've taken? You know, well, I think Silicon Valley is awesome. It's awesome. It's, 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 it is no question the most you know vibrant uh, startup ecosystem in the world, and it's sort of the pride of America and the envy of the of the world. And so it's it, it's great. Obviously, you know, there's, there are always going to be challenges, uh, but Silicon Valley is not just a place. It's it's also like an idea. And how do we take that idea of thinking in 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 kind of 
breakthrough, disruptive ways? How do you re- reimagine important aspects of our lives? How do you really shift how big industries work? How do you take that mindset and, and, and create that environment in more parts of the, of the country? And also, how do you create more opportunity in more parts of the country? One of the, one of the problems in the last you know, decade, which led to the rise of the rest, um, was that 75% of venture capital was going to just three states. California, New York, and Massachusetts. So if you wanted to start a company, you felt like you had to be in one of those places. So a lot of people left Ohio or Virginia or Michigan or, or you know, other parts of the country to go to places like Silicon Valley because that was the land of opportunity. So that kind of hollowed out some of those communities uh, and, and uh, kind of advantage even further you know, Silicon Valley. And so we've seen a brain drain over the past couple of decades. And how do you slow the brain drain of people leaving and how do you create a boomerang of people returning? And, and venture capital is part of that. Creating vibrant startup ecosystems in dozens of cities all across the country is, 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 is part of that. And helping these companies when they do have ideas to, to scale them and establish the right partnerships and get the right visibility is, is part of that. You know, we're trying to create a more inclusive innovation economy. So anybody anywhere has an idea, has a shot at starting a company, a shot at really the American dream, not just a few people in, in a few places. So, so what do you do? You decide, you know, you're starting this from, do you go out on a, you know, fundraising uh, tour and you hit up old friends and say, hey, this is what I want to do. This is the premise, this is the thesis, uh, you know, come along for the ride. How did, how did that, what were the, what were the early stages of? It evolved. The, the early, early years, I was just investing my own capital. And then we started to see some success and said, let's expand this and build a larger team and let's open it up to the outside investors. And we, at Revolution, we have, it's called the Rise of the Rest Seed Fund. We also have Revolution Ventures and all later stage Revolution Growth. And we have different groups of investors in, in, in each of those. But for the Rise of the Rest Seed Fund, it's it really is individual investors who are successful entrepreneurs and, and, and people like Jeff Bezos and Howard Schultz and you know, Tori Birch and Eric Schmidt and you know, a lot of folks like that. Ray Dalio, who, who are all investors with us in backing these entrepreneurs and in, in, in other, other places. Uh, but it's not a charity thing. We, we are, we, our goal is to generate top quartile returns by identifying promising entrepreneurs in places where most venture capitalists aren't looking, investing in them, helping, helping them in a variety of different ways scale their company. So ultimately ends up being a, a great investment return for, for everybody. And that will then inspire more people, including some of the coastal venture capital to be investing in the different parts of the country as opposed to just in their own, own backyard. Right. Um, you talk a lot about and write about um, technology in the future. Um, I'm curious, like, what you are most excited about in terms of technology seeing in the next, you know, let's call it 5, 10, 20 years. Well, a couple of thoughts. First of all, I mentioned earlier, I was inspired when I was in college by this book uh, by Alvin Topper called The Third Wave. I wrote a book also called The Third Wave five or six years ago. And the way I framed it is the first wave, it's all about the internet. The first wave is getting everybody online. We've talked about that from the early days of AOL. And now we and other companies essentially built the on-ramps to the internet and got everybody online. That then led to the second wave the last couple of decades, which is building app software on top of the internet, Facebook, Google, things like that, which obviously been been really interesting. I think the third wave is when the internet meets the real world. Uh, and that's where the internet starts really reimagining healthcare and food and agriculture and a lot of other uh, education, a lot of other sectors, which we've seen a little of in the last couple of decades, but we're going to see a lot more of in the next couple of decades. So that's the, the big industries that I think are up for grabs. And one of the things I've learned is that 
that some of the things we talked about before, that partnerships are critical to really have major you know, system, systemic change in these industries. So we work with the companies we back on helping them form partnerships. And we've also learned that because these tend to be regulated sectors, you've got to understand the policy aspect to it. So those are the big themes we're looking at. And then there are a lot of technologies that are bubbling and each of these industries usually integrate a lot of technologies to really enable the, the change they want. But I think it's important, just as in the early days of, of AOL and the Internet, not to focus just on the technology, but focus on the applications of the technology. Right. Right. Uh, and so that's really how we're, we're, we're focused. A company like Clear, for example, which most people think of as when you're going through an airport, you can get, get it faster because Clear has created this fast path. The underlying technology, the biometric technology is interesting. But the way they've deployed that in terms of a business model, subscription service, and partnerships with airports and partnerships with airlines is what turns that technology into something that's really useful. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Um, it's interesting, actually, that the, the firm is called Revolution. And some of these industries that you mentioned, like education, healthcare, these deep, you know, industries that ha- have to like fundamentally change in the future for it to sustain. I think it's going to require a revolution, right? And, and it yeah. seems like technology is sort of a catalyst for that. Um, but how far out do you think we are from, let's say, taking, taking education as, a, as an example, right? Like we have these historic institutions. We have this like fundamental way of doing things. We have the Department of Education, which is the government, which kind of controls a lot of it, right? And we all know that. How do you see and how far out do you think we are from like technology and the private sector and startups really you know, getting to a point where we're starting to see significant change uh, quickly. Because I know we're seeing it little by little, but, you know, college is still a thing and people are still going to college. And, and you know, who knows, you know, when that's not going to be a thing as much as it, what it used to be, you know? Yeah, there's obviously been a lot of investment in education technology, but I agree with you. We're kind of the second inning in terms of a revolution in education would be, you know, K-12 or higher ed or lifelong learning. Uh, there's some examples of things that are really quite interesting. Last week, uh, we hosted a Rise of the Rest uh, retreat, CEO retreat. It happened to be in Phoenix, Arizona. And one of the partnerships uh, we, we formed is with ASU, Arizona State University. Michael Crow, the president there, has really done a lot of innovative things. It's now the largest university in the country, the fastest growing university in the country, and eight years running the most innovative university in the country. They've gone from 20,000 students to nearly 200,000 students and half online, half on campus and doing some really fascinating things. So we need more examples of that, more models like that that really can be you know, taken to, to scale. And some of it, you're seeing new technologies, the one that's gotten a lot of attention in the last couple of months, chat GPT, could be super helpful in terms of uh, education. Some schools are banning chat GPT. Other schools, including ASU, are embracing it, saying it's a new tool. How do we teach people to use this tool in a, in a constructive way? Yeah. You know, I'm curious. Um, I think people oftentimes are afraid, you know, when it comes to technology that and and think uh, think of it as if it's going to be a complete substitute to something, right? Like if we're talking about education, technology is going to completely dis- disrupt it and there's going to be a completely new alternative to going to college. But oftentimes we don't think about the complementary uh, aspects of technology when it comes to like existing institutions, existing, you know, firms or companies where that could help them innovate and make it more accessible, for example, or you know, cheaper or whatnot. Um, I'm curious, like where you kind of stand um, as a technologist yourself. Like, do you see technology generally being more of like a complement, complementary thing to humans and, you know, or, or does it, is it kind of situational? Does it kind of really depend on the industry? 
I think it depends on the industry, but generally, I would agree with that. The technology in the early early days, people uh, you know kind of are excited by what's possible, also a little fearful about what's possible, and and often there's a concern also about some of these new technologies, you know, AI, robotics, things like that, will destroy jobs, and sometimes it does eliminate some jobs. But also, when we've seen these technologies over the past you know century, really. They also often create jobs, including some that we've never imagined before. And so it's always a, a balancing act. But I think the main point is you can't really stop and shouldn't try to stop the progress of innovation, the progress of, of technologies. How do you deploy it in ways that can improve people's lives, improve uh, societies, uh, continue to, from a U.S. perspective, continue to maintain the, the U.S.'s lead in, in the world as the most innovative entrepreneurial nation in the world. But just recognize there are risks associated with these things. And, and you know, the Internet itself, social media, which I, as we talked about, played a role in. It's been generally very positive, but there's also been some negative unintended consequences. You just have to be candid about that, authentic about that, and say, how do we maximize the positives that these technologies can enable, but also recognize there are going to be some some, some downsides, some risk, and, and be thoughtful about dealing with those. Steve, I've got to ask because it has something to do with kind of your background in college and political science and also what you're doing now, which is investing in these companies that will ideally better and change, you know, the world for the better. Um, but a lot of them, and we've talked to, you know, several folks in healthcare and education, some of the things that you mentioned are systemic problems that are really going to require, uh, unfortunately, government to step up and say, we've got to change this, right? With, with, if it's, you know, insurance with healthcare and, I mean, education is just a complete mess. So I don't even know how to frame that problem. But have you ever had an interest in being in government? I mean, I just think about your story, your background in political science, what you're working on, what the country needs. I mean, why not do some of those things also through government and politics and policy? Well, I think I think government's actually quite important. I understand why entrepreneurs say, oh, government, they're going to throw things up. They're going to slow things down. But my own experience with the Internet that wouldn't exist without the government funding the defense agency, DARPA, to create the Internet. Uh, wouldn't have existed unless the government decided to break up Ma Bell, AT&T, to create competition in, in the phone you know, phone business. There's a bunch of decisions that were made to, to essentially create and, and then open up and commercialize uh, the Internet. And a lot of things that we've worked on more recently in other sectors, there is an important role for uh, for government. Uh, so I'm not as negative on, on government. I agree with you. If you're really going to change these big aspects of our lives, these big industries, it's going to require a cross-sector approach, and government has to be at the at, at the table. I have been working on the on the policy side of things really from the early days because you know when AWO was started, it was still, believe it or not, illegal for businesses or consumers to be connected to the internet. It was restricted to government agencies and educational institutions. We had to get Congress to pass legislation to commercialize the internet, to open it up to everybody. And a lot of other things we had to do in those early days. In the last you know, couple of decades, I've worked on policy, including uh, co-chaired something called the National Advisory Council on Innovation Entrepreneurship, chaired a White House initiative for President Obama called Startup America. So I've been involved a lot on policy and continue to be. I'm, I'm working now with the Commerce Secretary, Gina Raimondo, on a national entrepreneurship strategy. Uh, so I'm happy to work on policy. I think it is important. What I try to stay out of is politics because I think one of the challenges in, in policy is how hyper-partisan everything has get, gotten. So I try to avoid you know that and focus on what the right political or policy solution is 
and then how to bring both parties together to get bipartisan support uh, for that, including the the Jobs Act I worked on 10 years ago, some of the legislation that passed last summer, including the Chips and Science Act with regional hubs. I, I, I worked on that. I've been working for the last decade on immigration reform. Even even today, I published an op-ed in CNN about immigration reform. So I, I think policy is important. Government is important. For me, the best way to do it is to be in the private sector, trying to champion and back these entrepreneurs, travel around the country, see what's happening everywhere, and try to influence policy while staying out of politics. So are you like completely opposed to running for office? I mean, because I think like a case-closed just kind of campaign you, you're, slogan you're, you're, would be you're, awesome. <laughs> well, I'm not sure that's a winning winning slogan. Just <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think I am. I think I, what I'm doing. I feel like I'm having an impact and, and, and able to do it without kind of getting uh, kind of caught up in the political uh, kind of uh, crosshairs. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Steve, you know, thank you so much for sharing your story with us and uh, just spending time talking about your story, but also answering uh, questions that I'm sure our listeners will have had and have already. Uh, about your story and your thoughts on, you know, the future and what you built and policy. And it just frames everything really well in terms of, you know, your career, right. Of starting off in Hawaii, moving to the States, um, going from being a poli sci major to starting a tech company <laughs> and then investing all these entrepreneurs, you were able to just pivot all the time and kind of change what you were doing because you believed in the future and the future of not only, you know, the country, but of technology, of innovation. And I think that it's an inspirational story to both of us and to everybody who's listening. Uh, so we thank you for that and um, can't wait to see all the other companies that you invest in and all the other impact that you have uh, throughout your career. Well, you're kind and thank you both for, for doing this podcast, inviting me on, but also you know, using it as a way to tell the stories of entrepreneurs and hopefully inspire the next generation of entrepreneurs. And for those out there listening to this, you probably have some idea in your head, some problem you think, you know, you have a solution to, but maybe haven't really been, you know, kind of quite able to take the leap. I, I would just encourage you to, you know, not a better time than now. Things are changing kind of rapidly in a bunch of different industries. And also it ties in with uh, our work with the Rise of the Rest. If you're you know, somewhere in the middle of the country and you feel like you're not in Silicon Valley, therefore you don't really have the ability to kind of play in the NFL. You feel like you're, you're, you just don't have a chance. That's not true. It might've been true 10 or 20 years ago. It was really hard getting a little bit easier. 1400 new venture firms have started in Rise of the Rest cities in the last decade. So capital is available locally. You know, if you have that idea, Take a shot. Jump into the, into the fray. You know, it, it'll be challenging for sure. It may not work out. But if you have an idea and you don't take a shot at it, you'll, you'll likely regret that later. So those listening who are uh, on, the, on the, you know, thinking they want to be entrepreneurs, I would just say no better time than now. We have big problems in the world that need bold entrepreneurial solutions. And because of what's happening with the rise dress all across the country, uh, every city now is launching you know, really innovative companies that have the potential to change the world. Also, you know, kind of in, in some ways, kind of you know, strengthen their their communities. So go for it. Go for it. Jump in. Absolutely. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate your time. Thank you. <laughs>